Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. It's my pleasure today to welcome on the podcast, Shemen Keitner. Shemen, who has appeared here before and is a good friend of the society, active in many ways, is the Alfred and Hannah from Professor of International Law at what's still UC Hastings. We were just chatting about uh, the uh, interesting story of the UC Hastings Law School and its and its name uh, name debate. But for the moment, still Hastings. And uh, Shemen has a lot of experience uh, as well uh, in, inside the Beltway, State Department, uh, where and so forth. And so I thought she was the perfect person to bring on uh, to talk about one of the uh, really interesting issues flowing through uh, the federal court system right now. Uh, involving uh, Saudi Arabia and specifically uh, Mohammed bin Salman, better known as MBS. And I think we'll probably refer to him during the podcast uh, as MBS. Uh, and the lawsuits that are uh, pending against him for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So uh, we're going to talk about those issues with Shemen. Shemen, welcome to the podcast. Uh, it's always great to talk to you, Cal. Yeah, great to have you. And um, so I gave the briefest of summaries about our topic, uh, but I really want to uh, let you say a little bit about uh, what's happening in the, you know, in the courts right now uh, with Judge Bates and, uh, and sort of what are the interesting questions that are arising? Because there are many and we're not going to be able to dig into everything, but there's so many interesting issues here. So, so just a little overview. There are so many issues. And, you know, I think it's important to preface all of our conversation, of course, with the fact that we're dealing with an extremely uh, brazen, brutal, and really tragic killing uh, that has been you know, documented, confirmed, uh, as folks might recall, uh, in a fairly unusual move, uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, ODNI, declassified their assessment in February 2021 that MBS had approved a capture or kill operation involving Jamal Khashoggi, who is, of course, a Saudi national, but had been living for a number of years uh, in Washington, D.C., reporting for The Washington Post, uh, living outside of the country precisely because of continued threats against him, had been separated from his wife and children there, and had uh, recently in a uh, an Islamic ceremony married uh, another woman who, uh, in order to marry her civilly, he required a, a certificate from Saudi Arabia attesting to his eligibility to be married. And it's his quest for that certificate that ultimately provided the uh, occasion for uh, this uh, this fairly elaborate ruse to be constructed that that led ultimately to his death. But all of those underlying facts are fairly um, you know well documented, and so this is a a really interesting but but tragic case that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, I agree completely. And in fact, I think as many listeners know, uh, President Biden was just in Saudi and after repeatedly on the campaign trail, uh, making clear that he would treat uh, MBS uh, as or Saudi generally as a kind of pariah, uh, seemed to walk that back significantly. And you know, there was a whole issue about would he shake hands and instead they kind of fist bumped. And so yeah, I'm not sure. It's, it's like a, the COVID fist bump. How does that fit in the uh, the diplomatic register of uh, <laughs> interstate relations? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but it, 
In terms of the timeline, so this this murder took place in October 2018. As folks will remember back then, it was first a, a disappearance, but it became uh, f- evident fairly soon that a murder had taken place. This complaint was filed uh, by, again, some refer to her as, as Khashoggi's uh, fiance. The complaint refers to her very understandably as his widow, uh, and also the human rights group of which he had recently been made uh, executive director, whose acronym is DAWN, D-A-W-N. And so uh, those two plaintiffs filed this complaint in October of 2020 in the district court uh, in D.C. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it's been assigned to Judge Bates. And it is a complaint uh, with a federal claims under the Alien Tort Statute and the Torture Victim Protection Act, again, all relating to uh, essentially the orchestration of this killing. Uh, Of course, there's no allegation that MBS was a direct participant, but there are uh, various allegations in the complaint, both about his uh, approval of this operation, but also his apparently or allegedly uh, instructing the uh, ambassador to the United States from Saudi Arabia, who was his brother, uh, to reassure Khashoggi that going to uh, seek this certificate in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul would be safe because Khashoggi understandably was was very concerned and uh, had actually tried to obtain the document from the embassy in DC in the first instance. So uh, this, this whole conspiracy is alleged to violate both of those provisions. Also, there are pendant uh, state law, common law tort claims in this complaint. And although when it was filed, one might have assumed that the head of state immunity question would be ripe for discussion immediately. Uh, as folks know, with U.S. litigation, there was you know a fair bit of motion practice, uh, motions to dismiss filed ultimately both by MBS and by some of his co-defendants. Uh, and so it's really just uh, on July 1st of this year, actually, that Judge Gates uh, issued an invitation for the U.S. government to uh, offer views if it sees fit. And so that the government has not uh, made any submissions or filings in this case to date. Yes. And my understanding is, or at least this is based on reporting that uh, that I've seen, that the Biden White House is also asking for an extension in part because these issues are fairly complex and it sounds like there's some internal debate. Is that your understanding? Is that? Well, absolutely. I mean, I have no idea what's going on internally, but I will say um, it would be highly unusual for the government to be able to turn around an intervention in a case like this uh, within 30 days in any event. And so uh, the request, uh, I think the, the initial invitation was to submit something within a month. The government asked for a 60-day extension. So the deadline is now October 3rd. And then what just happened yesterday, we're recording now on the 21st of July. So what happened on the 20th is the parties agreed that they should postpone a hearing uh, that had been scheduled for August 31st. That's going to be postponed now to November 2nd uh, to be able to take account of anything that the government decides to submit. And I think the one thing to bear in mind is that, uh, and this is, again, fairly standard, the government uh, may end up submitting something that says, you know, we have nothing relevant to say here. Um, and so, you know, that in and of itself would be noteworthy, but uh, we will we will see um, some sort of submission that ranges anything from we have nothing to say to addressing uh, any one of the four issues, actually, that the judge identified as perhaps warranting 
some comment or anything else that the government uh, decides it wishes to bring to the court's attention. Great. So let's start with the issue, if uh, if you agree, of head of state immunity, because it seems it seems to me in many ways a really central. It's obviously a central issue. It's also one that Biden's visit that we just referenced really highlights the power of NBS and the fact that he is effectively, uh, by by nearly all accounts, the person who is most powerful, most significant, making the decisions um, that matter the most. And and it's no surprise that. Um, when Biden decided to make this trip, despite his earlier uh, uh, earlier claims and promises, this is the person that he met with. Um, but nonetheless, he's not the head of state. So, um, so flesh out a little bit what the issues are and whether there are any relevant precedents. It, this is fairly sui generis, um, at least in recent practice. So the kind of immunity that you're talking about, of course, is a status-based immunity that attaches to any sitting head of state recognized as such by the U.S. government. And so it's both uh, customary international law immunity, but also one that, although not codified in any U.S. statute, um, is well recognized uh, in U.S. courts. And so uh, if we look to the sort of definition of head of state immunity in the International Court of Justice's famous arrest warrant case in which listeners will recall uh, there was an arrest warrant for the foreign minister of Congo and the ICJ ultimately decided that uh, in issuing that arrest warrant or or requesting an international arrest warrant, Belgium had violated the status-based immunity of Belgium's foreign minister. And so the ICJ in that decision held that certain holders, and I'm quoting here, certain holders of high-ranking office in a state, such as head of state, head of government, and minister for foreign affairs, are entitled to this absolute status-based immunity while they're in office. Now, Cal, of course, your question uh, arises because, as you said, it seems that MBS is performing many of the functions we would associate with a head of state or a head of government, but in his list of uh, titles, of which there are many, uh, neither of those, none of those uh, three, head of state, head of government, or minister for foreign affairs, appears. And so part of what's at issue here is do we take a, a sort of formalistic approach to head of state immunity, um, or is uh, there an argument, which certainly MBS makes in his motion to dismiss, uh, that the the scope of head of state of immunity needs to encompass more uh, more people than maybe a formalistic approach would suggest. Great, great. And it's implicit in what you just said, but in the roughly two decades um, since the arrest warrant case, uh, the ICJ has not really elaborated on that uh, that clause or the such as language that that seems to imply that perhaps those three categories or titles are not the only three. It right? hasn't. And, and, you know, we can certainly um, read into the rationale for head of state immunity and talk about that a little bit in terms of, of thinking through, you know, which other officials might come within the scope. MBS's motion to dismiss talks about sort of two possible ways of, of squeezing him in to this category. One is, of course, by virtue, as we've just discussed, of the roles that he actually does play. Uh, They've also dug up some jurisprudence 
on the protections afforded to a head of state's uh, members of a head of state's household. And this is, of course, analogous to the protections afforded members of a diplomat's household. Traditionally, uh, the context in which protections for the household arise is when you have dependents. Uh, and so the idea is, you know, your dependents should not uh, be targeted for the same reasons that you yourself are not targeted. Uh, the opposition to the motion to dismiss points out that he is certainly not a dependent of his father anymore, uh, and so that kind of derivative head of state immunity should not be available to him. Um, but these are the kinds of arguments Judge Bates is going to have to parse. Yeah, let's dig into that a little bit, because it does seem if if the rationale for head of state immunity is in some ways grounded, I mean, I guess there's an open question, what degree is it grounded in sort of status or dignitary dimensions of sovereignty and what uh, to what degree is it grounded in a kind of functional rationale, one that we often see articulated with regard to a wide variety of immunities that, but for some form of immunity, uh, international affairs couldn't really take place and, and it would be inhibiting of, of, of many kinds of uh, interactions that we would generally want to see. Um, if, if it is uh, functionally grounded in some important way, and the family members suggest that, uh, the addition of family members uh, do suggest that, um, is it crazy for him to be claiming that? It doesn't, doesn't seem crazy. I mean, I'm hesitant to be supporting his position, but it doesn't seem crazy. I've got to admit, Cal, um, initially it seemed a real stretch to me. And actually, Bill Dodge and I have an article that came out very recently in the Fordham Law Review that really provides an exhaustive examination of foreign official immunity in U.S. courts. And we mention the bin Salman filing and talk about the fact that he is not a head of state and so as such, nor a head of government, nor a foreign minister as such, would not be entitled to immunity under any of those uh, categories. But I do think that if um, Judge Bates were inclined or if the U.S. government were inclined to to dig into those rationales as opposed to applying a formalistic rule, uh, I would agree with your characterization of the argument as, as not crazy. I'm not sure I'd go farther than that, but I would agree with the not crazy characterization. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I'm not, you, you are much more steep in this, and this is why I'm asking you questions and not the other way around. But it does seem, you know, just looking back at the broad uh, kind of history of, of foreign relations, even in this country, let alone around the world, it seems like there's been a proliferation of positions. Let's think of the National Security Advisor, for example, um, someone who wouldn't fall under any of these categories articulated by the ICJ, but is an extremely significant figure. And at times in American history has been much more significant than the Secretary of State ever is. I'm thinking of, let's say, Henry Kissinger um, during the Nixon years, uh, much more significant player who routinely throws out the Secretary of State out of all kinds of things. So it does seem a bit formalistic to fixate on these titles uh, rather than the actual functions. On the other hand, of course, if it's simply a functional inquiry, it gets very messy, very fast, very fact-dependent. Um, and I can't imagine the ICJ, for one, ever sort of endorsing um, a wholly uh, searching inquiry of this type that I'm describing. But it wouldn't be beyond a federal court to do that. So um, I guess one question is, you know, do you have anything more to say on that? And then two, what, do you, what are your predictions about what the Biden administration will actually do? 
Wow, that's that's a lot. So let's um, all all really excellent observations. So I'd say number one, uh, taking a step back. The Judge Bates's job is to apply the customary, uh, the common law. Sorry, and here here's the uh, that was a Freudian slip. Uh, the common law of foreign official immunity uh, as it has evolved in the United States. That's that's the body of law that the Supreme Court told us in Samantar versus Yusuf applies to these determinations. Uh, there are some ongoing debates about the extent to which a judge in his position would have to defer to an executive branch determination of immunity. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, uh, to the extent that any executive branch suggestion of immunity for MBS is based on a recognition by the U.S. government that he is a head of state, a head of government, or a foreign minister, uh, that would be uh, that's understood to be binding to the extent that the government, if it did, uh, started to wander into these sort of functional arguments. Uh, I would argue that's not binding because there, you know, there's no greater uh, authority in my view. Again, others disagree for the executive branch to be elucidating the principles of common law that apply to official immunity determinations. Uh, there's no greater authority in the executive branch than there is in the courts. In fact, perhaps. To the contrary. So one question is, you know, what body of law do you apply and and how much weight do you put on the executive branch's submission? And the second question is, well, of course, you know, uh, common law is heavily informed by customary international law. Bill and I argue in our article that uh, U.S. courts should not go beyond what customary international law requires. And certainly I would argue that customary international law does not require granting immunity to MBS, uh, precisely because uh, he is not one of uh, an office holder of the stature that's required. And number two, precisely because of the line drawing problems that that your question illustrated. Uh, there are line drawing problems with the, the sort of household concept if you go beyond minor dependents, and there are certainly line drawing problems if somebody's supposed to figure out, you know, whether Kissinger is, you know, really calling the shots or not uh, in, in sort of looking at a foreign country. Now, status-based immunity, to the extent that it has this functional purpose, does not uh, begin and end with uh, head of state immunity and, of course, as is codified both in treaty and in statute, diplomatic immunity for ambassadors. There's special mission immunity. And so if the argument is that somebody like Kissinger had to travel to a foreign country while he was national security advisor and didn't want to be sued while he was there, uh, or more importantly, arrested and prosecuted while he was there. Uh, There is a recognition that uh, individuals who conduct special diplomatic uh, missions as recognized by the receiving state uh, can enjoy a temporary status-based immunity while they're performing that function. So that doesn't help MBS here, of course, because he's already been served by mail. Uh, He does have some personal jurisdiction arguments that he's certainly raised. But in terms of uh, listeners who are concerned that, you know, sort of it's either head of state or the troika, as we call it, or nothing, Rest assured that, again, to preserve the ability to travel, uh, there is the United States is not party to the Convention on Special Missions Immunity, but it certainly has in a couple of filings uh, recognized uh, that U.S. courts can, uh, again, at the direction of the executive branch or suggestion of the executive branch, grant special mission 
immunity uh, in in appropriate cases, but it, but that um, that kind of protection is important on the functional level. It doesn't get us past the fact that lawsuits like this um, are both extraordinarily important for vindicating uh, important interests and values uh, that you know the plaintiffs are seeking to vindicate, but at the same time can create tremendous foreign relations problems. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does seem, I guess, two reactions. One, to go back to where you began with the question of what's binding on the court to, or the degree to which the executive branch's determinations are binding, just to clarify that that flows uh, from the administration's, from, from a constitutional power to recognize, receive ambassadors and recognize and so forth. So the, the courts are not in a position to say, no, this isn't the foreign minister. Um, but I totally agree with you that once you get out of that troika, uh, it's a much more open texture. It does seem like the existence of special mission immunity does provide an opening uh, for MBS's lawyers to say, you know, look, we're not, whatever the ICJ may have said in that uh, arrest warrant case two decades ago, they left that a bit open because they were clear it's not only these three. They could have said only these three, they didn't. Uh, and then in addition, we have this, of course, many other forms of immunity, diplomatic, consular, etc. But we also have this very specific idea of special mission immunity that suggests something that is really quite functional. So um, that does seem to at least open the gates to it. But um, but as we talked about, it's it's quite slippery and, uh, and not necessarily useful for him here, except in a kind of, perhaps you could assimilate to it, you can't actually rely on it. Yeah, I think it would be tricky in the sense that, you know, you don't carry your special mission immunity with you uh, at all times, right? right. It's, it's right. very time bound. And so it, it means that certainly were he to come here for some sort of an official visit, he couldn't be served with process during that visit. Um, but again, this, this suit is already well underway. And, uh, and so it's in, a, in an age in which physical travel is no longer necessary to the conduct of diplomacy, uh, you could either argue that these sort of traditional notions of, of protecting you know, diplomats while they're traveling and so forth are, are antiquated. You could also argue that the immunities are less needed precisely because you can conduct diplomacy from afar. Hmm. I think that's a really interesting point. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, so let's talk about, I want to make sure we don't run out of time to talk about some of the other dimensions of this case. Um, I think at one point, it may have been in our kind of pre-conversation, we talked about the notion of conduct-based immunity. Of course, there's an act of state question. You mentioned the alien tort uh, statute. So I'll sort of kick it to you, but what are the other issues that you think listeners uh, would be uh, interested to hear about? Sure. Well, I guess the first thing is just to let people know we've talked about the deadlines. So what's happening in the government right now? Um, as John Bellinger, former State Department legal advisor, has said, and uh, I think in a, a various um, ACL meetings, including a panel I chaired at an annual meeting on immunity, the State Department process is um, what the State Department now does with respect to requests for suggestions of foreign official immunity. Uh, this is what they got out of the business of doing for foreign state immunity when the FSIA, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act, was enacted in 1976, but they're still doing it for requests uh, for suggestions relating to foreign officials. And again, here, this request came from uh, the judge. It was an invitation 
uh, they could just decline the invitation, but what they're going to try to figure out is, are precisely uh, what we're talking about. And I think, again, the, the really easy thing would just be to say, you know, we confirm he is not a head of state or head of government, and then send the question back to Judge Bates to figure out the rest. Of course, Saudi Arabia is going to want much more than that in a governmental response. They'd want a much more fulsome response. The act of state defense uh, that bin Salman has raised uh, and I guess the other asterisk here, for especially for civ pro aficionados who may be listening, is um, Bill and I argue, and I think make a very good case in our article, that immunities uh, are an affirmative defense. So uh, just think of that in terms of the posture of these defenses that have been raised in the motion to dismiss. Active state doctrine, really post the Kirkpatrick case, uh, is a very narrow doctrine. Um, John Harrison from Virginia has some really interesting work on active state doctrine, and I did some work previously. So it's surprising to me, not surprising, it's interesting to me to see it rearing its head again in this context. So the, the gist of the argument, and I think for purposes of time, we'll have to leave it there, but just to let listeners mull over it, is that uh, if, if part of MBS's critical role as alleged is having told his brother to reassure Khashoggi that you know traveling to the Saudi consulate in Istanbul would be safe, um, that that sort of official communication was an act of state that shouldn't be adjudicated in a U.S. court. And again, I think that is really stretching the act of state doctrine uh, beyond its current role in U.S. jurisprudence. There are some other D.C. Cases that I think also have started to stretch the active state doctrine too far, and so that that's something to watch in this area. The more interesting, or can I just, relevant, uh, yes, sorry, can I just ask you to clarify that? So when you say it's stretching, is it because it's a kind of simple communication? Is it the is it that nature of it? What just say? More oh, I, I stretch stretching because really what the active state doctrine has become is simply a rule of decision telling U.S. judges that they need to treat as valid uh, official acts taken within uh, an official's own territory, right? So if MBS, you know, directed the transfer of certain uh, assets within Saudi Arabia to somebody, that would need to be taken at face value, not second-guessed by a U.S. judge. Right. Um, so so the, sort of stretching it to kind of this idea of, you know, anything a foreign country does is beyond the purview of U.S. courts to comment on uh, is, is, I think, um, that, that's what I meant by stretching. It's really, John Harrison uses the, the word sort of validity. It's a, it's a rule of validity we need to treat as valid, those official acts, you know, within the country's own territory. And, and does it matter if the relevant act in question uh, plausibly or, or apparently relates to a crime? Is that, in other words, is there a question here at all about whether an official act can encompass something like this alleged act? So the um, bill also has a great blog post of the, sort of the different meanings of official act. And so in the act of state context, uh, you know, it really wouldn't matter if, as long as it was um, lawful under the domestic law of the country in which it took right. place. But again, it's, it's sort of, it's the whole parallel kind of set of inquiries. And, and as you might recall, uh, uh, this doctrine was really articulated in the case of, you know, sort of foreign bribery cases and things like that. It, it has, however, and this is what I've traced in my work, uh, its doctrinal origin in this Underhill versus Hernandez case that, that people often cite 
is um, very much linked to that of this other category of immunity we haven't talked about yet, which is conduct-based immunity. And the reason we haven't talked about it is that MBS does not assert it as a defense. And so as an affirmative defense, he has thereby waived the ability to assert conduct-based immunity. Um, it would be odd for him to raise it insofar as there have been prosecutions in Saudi Arabia of individuals involved in this uh, attack. So there's, it's you know obviously a, a criminal uh, criminal act, criminal conspiracy, even though he denies uh, involvement. But also, uh, it, it makes the State Department's job a little bit easier in the sense that kind of threading the needle of what kind of conduct should be treated as an official act for conduct-based immunity purposes uh, is, you know, sort of an ongoing debate. And again, here, I think, you know, if allegations are true, ordering or at least approving, you know, the killing and dismembering of a journalist certainly would not fall within, I think, any plausible concept of official acts or official functions. But there is an extreme argument out there that anything done under color of official authority, uh, with, with apparent authority, even if not actual authority, uh, even if it amounts to a violation of domestic law, international law, nonetheless should be shielded by conduct-based immunity. And so I think we will not be testing that extreme argument in this case, but in other foreseeable cases, that is still a, a lingering issue. Yeah, and that basic question has obviously arisen in many other disputes in many other contexts. Um, well, this has been great. I uh, I think we've covered a lot and, you know, I really appreciate your insights, not only because you've obviously written and thought about these uh, issues for quite a while, but you've also worked on them directly. So I hope uh, as this case moves forward and it, it, it appears like it will this fall, uh, we may have occasion to bring you back on to talk about it further. Always glad to talk about immunity, Cal. Great. Thanks, Shaman. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.